This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 125. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you, if you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. And of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go out and look for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for all those things, go onto my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's Brian with an O. And at the top of the page, you'll find my social media button. Just click on those. Take you right to my social media accounts. And while you're there, give me an email, and I will give you uh, a free ebook, Forgotten Founders in American History, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. And if you do like this show and you want to help support it, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way and help keep the lights on. I do appreciate any bit of support you want to give me. Also, don't forget that my book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, is out for purchase. You can go on out to Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Amazon.com, wherever books are sold, and pick up a copy. And if you do buy a copy and you get it, review it on Amazon.com. I'd greatly appreciate it. Or Goodreads, wherever you want to leave a review. Also, I do have copies for sale on my website, autographed copies. So Christmas is coming up. Think about that as a Christmas gift. And if you do like this podcast, also please leave a review on iTunes. The more reviews, the better. And I do appreciate any kind words that you throw my way. Okay. All that said, uh, this particular podcast is changing gears just a little bit. The last one was uh, geared and aimed at taking down, again, which seems like I could do that probably every podcast, but taking down people like David Blight and Stephanie McCurry and, and uh, you know, people on, of that ilk in Modern Academy. But this one actually comes from a, it's a listener-generated episode. And I had a, a listener contact me, and he said, Look, I have to do a paper on the uh, Trail of Tears, and I was wondering if you could talk about that. And so I'm going to talk about the Trail of Tears and uh, talk about a couple of misconceptions with the Trail of Tears, because I think that there are some important issues here that are often overlooked. And it's, it's not what you might be thinking, but I am going to get into some of the things that deal with that. In fact, I live in an area that was one of the staging points. In fact, I used to live in the town that was one of the staging points for the Creek Trail of Tears. And so uh, this was a, a big issue in this area, and uh, this land, the, the area that I live, was once the capital of the Creek Nation. It was called Coweta, and uh, they uh, they negotiated one of the more famous treaties. The Creek Nation negotiated one of the more famous treaties with the United States in a place called Oswichi, which was, for a time, uh, about a half a mile from my house. And uh, you wouldn't know it if you went there. It's got um, a power company there now and a cafe and some houses but at one time it was a, a an important meeting area for the creek nation and um, uh, for years if you did any digging around this area uh, you would find arrowheads and other artifacts uh, you know things that are just priceless uh, and so you go into the rivers and you would find these things go into the creeks around here and you would find uh, various artifacts from the creek nation um, some of that, a lot of that's been picked through, but uh, every now and then people still do find things. But this this uh, particular land was uh, front and center for the Creek Nation. It was a sacred land, and of course their capital is located here. So it is a big story in this region. So I think talking about the tra Trail of Tears is actually interesting. We, we often think about the Cherokee Trail of Tears, and that's all that comes to mind. 
but there were several different uh, relocation, forced relocation of the five civilized nations. So just give you a little background what's going on. Uh, when the United States was filling out the southeast and moving into the southwest, you had the five civilized tribes of the five civilized nations, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Seminole, and uh, the Creek. And so these uh, five nations, uh, which there were uh, you know, various subgroups in these nations. In fact, you had a very famous civil war in the Creek Nation, which was part of the War of 1812 called the Creek War. And you had the white sticks against the red sticks, and the red sticks opposed working with the United States, the white sticks were more interested in it. So you had uh, that particular split in the Creek Nation. Uh, of course, uh, Tecumseh was in, was in places like Alabama, what became Alabama, rallying the Creek around his cause to oppose American expansion. This was part of a, of a concerted effort among some of the tribes. And of course, Tecumseh being from the Shawnee, which was a Midwestern tribe, uh, out of Indiana, but uh, the Shawnee uh, being a major part of opposition to American expansion in that particular area, and Tecumseh later killed at the Battle of the Thames in 1813 by William Henry Harrison. Uh, but you had a concerted effort to block American expansion. Now, uh, when Washington, when President Washington became president, uh, you actually had something going on uh, called the Northwest Indian War, and uh, there was a serious defeat. It was called St. Clair's defeat, and uh, Washington was highly upset about this, and this is when he uh, gave uh, Mad Anthony Wayne a commission to go west with the American Legion and take out the Miami tribe in the Old Northwest, and they did that. He did a very good job of that, and he actually showed the, at the Battle of Fallen Timber, showed the the Miami, that the British were not going to help them, that no one was going to help them, and they needed just to essentially concede to American expansion. But this was this was a major part of the American War for Independence. You had tribes that had sided with the British who were opposed to American independence because they thought that their treaties were going to be violated by the United States, and they were right about that. I mean, the, the fact is uh, the treaties that the Indian tribes had signed with the British or the French or others were ignored, Though uh, the Creek did sign a very famous treaty with the United States in 1790, uh, and that's the treaty that was negotiated in Oswichi. Uh, and uh, so there was an attempt by the Washington administration after this situation with the Northwest Indian War and then with the Creeks to try to settle these issues and allow Americans to expand into the Midwest, what's now the Midwest, which uh, was part of the, of the uh, Northwest Territory, and then also into the Southwest which is now states like Alabama and Mississippi. Now, of course, that land was called the Yazoo land. And uh, if you go out and look at your Supreme Court decisions, you have the very famous case of Fletcher v. Peck, which I get into, actually, in my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. It's a very important case. And the important part of the case is that John Marshall is beating up on the states. And so that is really the key to understanding why John Marshall did what he did over and over again, when it comes to the situation with the southwestern Indian tribes and looking at some of the major issues dealing with the creek and the Trail of Tears. So I'm going to get into that. But then there's also this point about the uh, Trail of Tears and talking about what happened here. And people think, again, it was 1838 and that's it. That's the only Trail of Tears. This is entirely incorrect. So oftentimes the... Um, 
the Trail of Tears is put at the feet of Andrew Jackson. And, of course, while Jackson was president, you had the passage of the Indian Removal Act. That was 1830. And so, uh, you know, Jackson being uh, was you know part of his administration. Uh, and while he was president, you did see the removal of several of the uh, southeastern tribes. Though the Cherokee were actually not removed until 1838 after Jackson had already left office and Martin Van Buren was president. But uh, this was part of a larger effort in the southeast to open this land for American settlement. And so if you look at, for example, the state of Alabama today, it became a state in 1819. And the state of Alabama was essentially made up of Creek Indian land and also Choctaw and Chickasaw Indian land. Now, the, uh, the Choctaw actually also shaded into Mississippi as did the Chickasaw, um, but uh, it's uh, when you look at the land, uh, and the, of course the Chickasaw being more in Mississippi than the Choctaw, but the Choctaw uh, were, I mean, look, if you look at the history of the Choctaw, these are the people that DeSoto ran, ran across uh, with Chief Tuscaloosa uh, when he was traveling through Alabama. So the creek made up essentially the eastern part of the state of Alabama, the Cherokee in the northern part of Georgia, and some into to Alabama as well, uh, the Choctaw and the Chickasaw, Mississippi, and Alabama, and then the Seminole in Florida. Uh, and so uh, you had these, this was good fertile land, uh, and this is why Americans wanted it. They wanted the land in North Georgia because there was gold. In fact, in the late 1820s, you had the discovery of gold in North Georgia, which uh, precipitated a land rush there, a gold rush. Uh, and so people were looking to get rid of the Cherokee because that would be uh, beneficial for them to get this gold. Now, the Cherokee also shaded into Tennessee, uh, which is in, in North Carolina, which is why if you go to the Smoky Mountains today, uh, there's still a lot of Cherokee history in that particular region. So what happens is the United States passes the Indian Removal Act. Uh, this was designed, again, to try to solve the problem of having uh, conflict between these various tribes and American settlers in these regions because, again, this was good fertile land. Uh, it, was, it was going to be uh, the backbone, in, in many ways, of the cotton states eventually. You know, you look at uh, part of this creek uh, land went through the Black Belt. Same thing with uh, this Choctaw and Chickasaw land. This was good stuff. So they wanted the land, and so the tribes have to be removed. And the first tribe to be removed was the Choctaw. Uh, they, they went first. Uh, and by 1831, the Choctaw were essentially, were essentially removed. And they went through various ways, uh, various directions. Some took land routes, some took water routes. It depends. And there's a lot of accounts of these, very, of these different things. Uh, the Choctaw actually ended up getting about a quarter of, well, even, maybe even less than that, maybe a, 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 a fifth or less of what became the state of Oklahoma. Uh, in the southeastern corner of that. And so uh, they're, they're there first, and they uh, are moved into uh, Fort Towson in uh, southeastern Oklahoma. And so uh, that is, uh, you know, where the Choctaw end up. And, of course, there were a number of Choctaw who, were, who died on the passage. Um, now, were the Choctaw neglected uh, is the question. Were the Chickasaw neglected or the Creek or the Cherokee or the Seminole? Were they neglected? It depends on the accounts that you read. If you read, for example, uh, de Tocqueville's account of the Choctaw removal, uh, he depicts it as a very severe and uh, depressing situation. Uh, and 
certainly. There were abuses that were taken. The Choctaw were being abused anyways, and this was seen by some tribal leaders as, an, as a way to have a certain amount of freedom. They'd get away from this white settlement. They'd have their own area. But certainly there was a bitter taste in their mouth for being removed from their land and then being sent to Oklahoma, uh, without a doubt, uh, which is why when you get to the war... <laughs> The war in 1861, many of these five civilized tribes would actually favor the Confederacy, which is actually quite interesting because uh, these tribes viewed the United States government as the enemy. And the Confederacy gave them a non-voting membership in their government. So uh, that's a little bit of the unknown part of, of Confederate history. But uh, again, if you, if you read David Blight or Stephen McCurry or some of these others, they don't, they don't even bring that up. Uh, but uh, these were also by the 1830. All of these, uh, all of these tribes were slaveholding tribes. In fact, uh, if you look at the the terms uh, w- between McGilvery and Washington in 1790, uh, McGilvery was uh, received a whole boatload of money, which he used to buy slaves and plantations. So I mean, uh, the the Creek and the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole. They now the Seminole not so much, but the other four were certainly slaveholding tribes, and. Um, Again, if you read the depiction, it's, well, these people, uh, you know, they, they favored uh, the rights of former slaves. The Seminole would accept slaves into their, uh, former slaves into their tribe, which Seminole translates to wild men, so uh, they would do that. But the other tribes were certainly uh, slaveholding tribes. Uh, and so uh, that wasn't really even an issue, but they are going to be forced from Now, the, the second group would have been uh, the Chickasaw and the Creek. Uh, they, were, uh, they were next, uh, though the Chickasaw went before the Creek. Uh, the Chickasaw, just like the Choctaw, received a fairly large chunk of land, bigger than actually the Choctaw received. They received kind of the south, uh, south central and southwestern part of what's now Oklahoma. That was their land, uh, and so it's a fairly good, good, good chunk of land. Uh, now, the Creek and the Seminole resisted. Uh, the Seminole Indians fought a war with the United States. The Creek fought a war with the United States, and so they were treated a little more harshly than, say, the Cherokee. I'm sorry, than say the Choctaw, the Chickasaw. In fact, Winfield Scott was sent to uh, the Creek lands, and he was the man in charge of organizing the removal of the Creek Nation. Now, there were abuses. Without question, the Georgia militia who were involved in this did abuse some of the Creek people. But when you read Winfield Scott's accounts, and I consider Winfield Scott, he was actually one of the people I wrote about in my uh, Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes. I consider him to be a real American hero, Winfield Scott was a great American. But when you read his account, his account is quite different. And he does say that abuses did take place. However, he tried to keep those to a minimum, and he thought that for the time that the conditions were uh, at least acceptable for the removal of the of the uh, American Indians there, the Creek Indians, to Oklahoma. Now, the Creek and the Seminole had to share an area because, again, they were at war with the United States, and so they were not given the same type of terms that the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, or even the Cherokee were given when uh, they were moved west. Uh, but uh, the Creek had had been engaged in a war with the United States during the War of 1812 and then had resisted even further uh, American attempts to remove them. So uh, same thing with the Seminoles. So there was a, a little bit of an animosity there. But again, this is, this is where it depends on which accounts you read as to what the conditions were like. If you read Winfield Scott, they don't sound too bad. If you read the Creek or the Seminole accounts, or even the Choctaw or Chickasaw, or the Cherokee accounts, they sound horrible. It's probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, Winfield Scott, I, I don't consider Winfield Scott to be a dishonest man at all. In fact, I think he was probably one of the most honest 
people that I've ever read anything about. And Winfield Scott was was an extremely honorable person. Uh, but um, he made clear that uh, he tried to prevent abuse. And so uh, perhaps there there wasn't a whole lot. Um, and uh, again, it depends on who you read and what you're going to get out of that. But certainly the climate was right for some type of abuse. These uh, Same thing with the Choctaw and Chickasaw. They were, they were harassed even after uh, they, uh, they were removed. So uh, that could have potentially happened. Um, but the Creek are, are sent out uh, by 1836. They're moving west, again, taking various land or river or water routes to get to Oklahoma. This would have been a tough trip for anybody, and that's another thing. For anybody involved, whether it was the Creek, the five civilized nations, take your pick, um, a white settlers moving to Oklahoma would have been a tough journey full of peril and potential danger and potential loss of life. There's no doubt about that would have happened. So to think that these people died just because uh, they were being abused is to not understand that this was a tough trip in the 1830s for anybody, not just for uh, the five civilized nations, but for anybody going west, it would have been a tough trip. So uh, eventually the creek removed, and then, of course, the Seminole as well, and then finally the Cherokee in 1838, which is where you had uh, estimated between two and 6,000 people die on the Trail of Tears. So uh, that's, the, that's the political and military climate. Um, and one of the interesting things, about, of course, about the creek on uh, this area, there was actually a, a chief named McIntosh who was uh, well-liked by the United States, but he cut some deals with the U.S. And because of that, because the creek had said no more expansion, he was assassinated. In fact, he wasn't just assassinated. He was barricaded in his house and burned alive. Uh, so the creek uh, d- didn't take too kindly to Chief McIntosh uh, signing some treaties with the United States that would have allowed for further expansion and further removal of uh, creek land. So uh, the fact is that by that point, you know, Alabama was already a state and Americans were living in this land. And uh, you did have some interesting histories about the interaction between the Muscogee speaking peoples and and Columbus, Georgia, which is right near Fort Mitchell, which is where the staging point was for uh, this particular uh, trail, the Creek Trail of Tears, one of the staging points. And uh, you had you fall Alabama. Um, there's all kinds of, of different stories. It depends, on, again, on the stories you're reading as to what the relationship was between the Indian, the American Indians here and the American settlers. Uh, it was tenuous at best. Uh, and some of that was because, uh, the, for example, in Ufala, there were stories about how the uh, women, the, uh, the Creek women, would just come into your house un- uninvited, unannounced, and start taking things and then leave you gifts, what they thought were a fair trade for what they took, and even if you didn't think it was, you couldn't say anything about it because that would result in reprisal from the Creek warriors who were considered to be uh, pretty terrifying people. Uh, so there was a lot of tension between the American settlers and the Creek Nation in this part of the country. Now, of course, this is great farmland, and so people are going to want it. And this gets into the John Marshall part of it that I want to focus on and how people misunderstand the cases that were before the Supreme Court dealing with the removal of the uh, of the Indians. So, uh, one of the most famous cases is the uh, Worcester v. Georgia case, which was 1832. 
And uh, this is the case that supposedly said that uh, where Andrew Jackson said, well, John Marshall has made his decision. I let him enforce it. Now, it's often viewed as a situation where Marshall was trying to uh, was trying to make good on his earlier decisions uh, in response to uh, the Indian tribes suing in court. And uh, one of those was uh, the Fletcher v. Peck decision, which uh, he made. And the idea was that the state of Georgia could not invalidate fraudulent uh, fraudulent uh, sale, land sales by a bribed governor and a bribed government. They couldn't, they couldn't invalidate those contracts. And so you had uh, people getting filthy, stinking rich on bribery. And this is where, uh, but the, the point of that particular case for Marshall was to knock down the power of the states. That was the entire point. It really had, I mean, the case was irrelevant in many ways. It was more about the fact that Johnson, that, I'm sorry, that, uh, that Marshall was trying to destroy the power of the states. Now, that's the first one. The second one is a little-known case called Johnson v. McIntosh. This is actually an 1823 case where uh, oftentimes uh, law schools put this in as one of those cases where you have to tear it apart. Uh, And essentially, uh, the idea is that uh, this land was white man's property and that the the the, um, the Indians really had no claim to it. And again, you'll get the Cherokee Nation v. Georgia case of 1831 where uh, Marshall would kind of backtrack on this a little bit. But uh, essentially, uh, what uh, what Marshall wrote was, uh, was that the uh, European discovery of the Americas had created a situation where this land was essentially uh, European land. Uh, and so that um, uh, the, he, he called it the discovery doctrine that gave Americans right to this land. Now, uh, when you look at it, I mean, looking at it from a 21st century perspective, you would say, well, that, I mean, the Indians uh, are, are certainly being violated there because their rights to the land are not being recognized by the United States. Uh, but again, the, the point of this particular case for Marshall was that the states had no claim to this land. It was all about the general government. That's the underlying point here. Not about you know, what, what the Indian rights, property rights for Indian tribes, anything like that. The real point here for John Marshall was ensuring that the federal government was supreme in its dealing with the, with the Indian nations. He didn't want the states to have control of this, in other words. Now, if you look at Article One, Section Eight of the U.S. Constitution, when you when you have uh, commerce between the Indian tribes, that is delegated to Congress. But being able to regulate the tribes in the states where they exist, there's nothing in the Constitution about that. But essentially, what John Marshall says is, well, you know, that's that's a power of the general government because we assume the status of Great Britain when the United States became independent because we have a national government. That national government now has complete authority over foreign relations, and oh, because of foreign, because dealing with these tribes is foreign relations because they're a foreign people. The states have no control over that. That's his argument because the states were trying to regulate land that was in their state limits, dealing with the Indian tribes. 
So this is an interesting case. You know, did you have uh, essentially independent peoples within the United States, within the states themselves, even though the United the states themselves are saying that's our land, the United States government is saying, no, that's our land, and then you have the American Indian tribe saying, no, that's our land. So which was it? And who was particularly right? Now, I think that Marshall, uh, in this particular case, does have a fairly good point when you're talking about foreign policy, which is what this was, and you're dealing with treaties and, and uh, agreements between the tribes and the United States, that is, that is uh, under the purview of the United States government. That is a foreign policy issue. But when you look at the Wooster case, which is the case that's so important, what this was essentially was saying that you had to have a permit from the state of Georgia to go onto Cherokee land to become a... a um, a minister, essentially, to the Cherokee people. Uh, a missionary to the Cherokee people. And what's funny is that people try to read into this for John Marshall, and they say, well, this is John Marshall making amends for some very bad decisions. I mean, he felt guilty over what he had done before. There's no evidence of that at all. In fact, what John Marshall is doing here is beating up on the state of Georgia because he does not believe that the state of Georgia has any constitutional authority here. He is knocking down state powers. That is the issue at stake here in cases like Wooster v. Georgia or Fletcher v. Peck or Johnson v. McIntosh or the Cherokee Nation versus Georgia. I mean, this is the issue at case here. This is the issue at stake here. It's the state powers. But the question is, did the states, could the states essentially do something like this where you would have to have a permit from the state to go on to this land? What Johnson is saying is, no, no, you can't because if Wooster was a U.S. citizen, which he was, then he can go on to U.S. territory. Is that land U.S. territory, though, or is that Creek territory, or is that Cherokee territory, or is that Choctaw or Chickasaw or Seminole territory? Well, who owns that land? It's within the limits of a state, and this is where you start getting to federal property. Do they have control of these, of these lands? And, of course, this is setting up uh, the issue of tribal sovereignty, which I hinted at in, in the last podcast. I've got a cool thing coming up within a week where I'm going to get into this issue again with you, but in a different way, and you're going to want it. Uh, and so listen for that. Uh, you're going to want to get this. But this issue of tribal sovereignty, who actually had sovereignty? And if it was U.S. territory, well, how? Did they purchase it from, uh, the, from the Cherokee or the Creek or the Choctaw or the Chickasaw or the Seminole? Did they purchase it? Or was this territory part of the state of Georgia? And so Georgia had control over the land, but the, state, uh, the, the United States had, uh, had the power to negotiate with the Creek and the Cherokee and the Choctaw and the Chickasaw. That's the major question. I think that it's clear, I think in my opinion, that the state actually had control of this land and not the general government. But of course, as we move forward in time, we get to something called the reservation system. And so uh, that would be the Dawes Commission and creating these reservations. And so that's going to build on this Wooster v. Georgia case that the United States government is the only one that can cordon off land for the American Indian tribes. They're the only ones who can establish these type of things. And they, they can actually break into states 
and do it. Well, of course, according to the Constitution, you can't partition states without their consent. And so is Georgia consenting to be partitioned here or not? If Georgia says that's our land, it's their land. And in fact, I think Marshall got the case right in Cherokee versus Georgia. He got it right in that case. He backtracked on it here because this was going to knock down the power of the state. So that's what's going on with John Marshall. This is not about the rights of Indians or the feeling bad for the plight of the American Indian tribes. And Andrew Jackson's just some mean guy up there saying, well, Jack, uh, Marshall's made a decision, let him enforce it. What's really going on here is that you look at this as a state versus federal power issue. Did Georgia have the ability to regulate the territory that the Cherokee occupied? It was within their borders. Or did the central government have that authority? Did it come down to treaties alone? Or because this land, Cherokee land, was in the state of Georgia, could Georgia say, hey, Wooster, you can't go on that land without a permit from us because that land's within our borders? Can the states do something like that? Well, nowadays we would say, no, no, the state can't do anything. But this issue was not settled, and I'm not certain it's really still settled constitutionally. I know John Marshall, again, has made his decision but I think we can go back and look at the Constitution, look at some things surrounding that issue, and, and make a fair argument that, well, maybe Georgia was actually right in this particular case. The Supreme Court had actually found in favor of them just one year earlier that maybe uh, Marshall was wrong in the Johnson v. McIntosh case. Maybe when it came down to uh, the internal affairs and land within the state, maybe the states did have control of that land. And it was only through negotiation as a foreign nation when you start looking at, okay, what are we going to do with the people themselves that the United States would have control over that. But outside of that, this would have been more of a state issue. Now, when it comes to commerce, I think, of course, constitutionally, the only people that can negotiate with the American Indian tribes is the central government in forming economic relationships. That's certainly constitutional. But the rest of it is is up for question. And, and and Marshall, again, because of his position and wanting to be, wanting to exert, exert federal supremacy, this is what's undergirding everything Marshall is doing here. And I think that's the thing that people miss about this. So we've got several issues going on with the Trail of Tears. One is the actual conditions. You look at what Winfield Scott said compared to what uh, the Cherokee or the Creek or the Choctaw or the other tribes said. You have difference of opinion about the treatment of the Cherokee or the five civilized nations uh, you, so there's, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, it was probably bad, but maybe not as bad as the nation said, but certainly not, to, not, not very good. I mean, it was, uh, not a situation anybody would want to go to. And of course we can look at this and say, this is a forced relocation of people. Uh, that's a sad episode in American history. Uh, and, uh, this was something that uh, the United States government should not be proud of. But then we also look at the situation when it comes to you know, regulating these lands and who had the power over them. And this, again, is a state and federal issue. Even to this day, we've got reservations. Who controls the reservations? Is it federal government or the state governments? We've, we've sided with the federal government, but is that necessarily constitutional? I think the question is still open. Supreme Court can change its mind. We've got uh, the, the radical Republicans after the war establishing this reservation system situation. And maybe that's, um, that's not so good. Uh, we, we can look at uh, that particular issue and how that worked out. 
But either way, I hope this uh, answers some questions about the Trail of Tears and how these things happen, the climate of the time, the political climate, the social climate, economic climate, and what led to these things, and also uh, the Supreme Court decisions and, and how important they were and why they were made by John Marshall. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.